Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, descriptions of sexual acts, and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In April of 1999, 38-year-old Keith Ranieri told his ex-girlfriend, 41-year-old Tony Natale, that the next time he saw her, she would be dead or in jail. But Tony wasn't threatened. She was exhausted. Her eight-year relationship with Keith had been debilitating. According to her book, The Program, he had cheated on her repeatedly and raped her at will. But when Tony tried to walk away, Keith couldn't accept it. Among other damaging tactics, he deluged her with passages from John Milton's famous epic poem, Paradise Lost. Milton's book was about the battle between God and the devil. In his Paradise Lost letters, Keith branded Tony as the devil. He accused her of allowing her pride to drive her into committing evil acts. He warned her that, like Lucifer's actions had led to a fall from grace, Tony's attempts to break up with him would culminate in the destruction of her soul. When Tony still refused to take him back, Keith abandoned poetry in favor of a blatant threat. He told her that the next time they met, she'd be dead or in prison. As it turned out, the prescient guru was right. The next time he was face-to-face with his ex-girlfriend, Tony Natale, one of them was indeed in shackles. However, it wasn't the woman he characterized as a fallen angel. On the contrary, it was the man who cast himself as an unimpeachable god. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. Today marks the last episode of our deep dive into Nexium. The group made headlines for physically branding its celebrity-laden membership and coercing them into being sex slaves, all to satisfy its narcissistic leader, Keith Raniere. In this final episode, we'll cover the escalating abuse meted out on the women in Keith's sorority sex ring, DOS. Then we'll explore how actress Sarah Edmondson helped drag DOS's horrors into the light. Finally, we'll detail Keith's flight to Mexico and his eventual capture. We've got all this and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. By 2016, 56-year-old Keith Ranieri had risen to unimaginable heights. He had built Nexium into a multi-million dollar business that boasted a client base of billionaire heiresses and Hollywood actresses. Keith's incredible success likely made him feel invincible. And in the glow of this power, he started doing more and more insidious things in the dark. Unbeknownst to some of his most senior Nexium executives, Keith had carved out a secret society within his already cloistered community. He called it DOS. Like Nexium, DOS was based on a pyramid structure. However, whereas Nexians shelled out thousands of dollars to take classes, DOS's price of entry was much higher. In order to join, the recruited women had to become slaves. At the outset, most of DOS's slaves believed that they were joining an all-female sorority that would help them become empowered. It was only after willingly handing over damaging blackmail material as collateral that the true horror of the group was revealed. First, they were commanded to seduce Keith, and then they were branded with his initials. Despite this inhumane treatment, several of the women in DOS were afraid to leave the group, the ruinous collateral serving its exact intended purpose. They'd unknowingly locked themselves into an unbreakable sexual contract with Keith. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In an interview with journalist Sarah Berman, BDSM educator Carlisle Jansen stated that kinky sexual relationships can take virtually any form, but the basic dynamic tends to center around submissive participants surrendering power to dominant partners. However, there should never be something hanging over a submissive's head where they have to do something or else. That totally violates free will and consent. Keith didn't care about free will or consent. By restricting the information he gave to recruits until they handed over their own blackmail material, he was able to grow a robust pyramid of sadomasochism. According to journalist Colin Moynihan, the pyramid eventually boasted four levels, each slave reporting to her master on the level above. As the sole man atop the pyramid, Keith was the grandmaster. Yet even this vaulted designation didn't satisfy his ego. If anything, Doss made Keith crave more admiration. This was evident during his meetings with his eight first-line slaves. During these sessions, Keith required that his slaves sit completely nude on the floor around him, while he lectured them fully clothed from a chair. On one occasion, Keith didn't feel that one of his slaves was being deferential enough. So according to first-line slave Lauren Salzman, Keith accused the woman of being prideful, and then he kicked her. Keith's treatment of the women in DOS was abhorrent. 
However, the most disturbing sign of his darkening appetites was his plan to build a dungeon. According to Lauren Salzman, Keith convinced Rosa Laura Hunko, a wealthy first-line slave, to purchase a sorority mansion with a roomy basement. It was there that Keith intended to build a dungeon. But first, he had to stock up on supplies. E.J. Dixon reported that Daniela Padilla, another of Keith's first-line slaves, ordered thousands of dollars worth of BDSM sex toys, likely at the guru's command. These items included ball gags, shock collars, ankle shackles, and a steel cage. It was the cage in particular that terrified Lauren. Even before it arrived, she began worrying that Keith would one day ask her to climb inside of it. In a later testimony, she stated, the idea was that of complete humiliation. You would just be in there until they let you out. It could be 10 minutes, it could be an hour, it could be days. In truth, Lauren didn't need to climb inside a cage. She was already trapped by her love for Keith. And like the slave who would one day be locked inside of the steel contraption, Lauren had no idea how long her sentence would last. Lauren had been a member of Nexium for almost two decades. She was first recruited when she was 21. Her mother, Nancy Salzman, was the one who brought her into the fold. Though her mother was one of Keith's sexual partners, a few years after she joined Nexium, Keith also began an intimate relationship with 24-year-old Lauren. Keith's decision to sexually exploit both a mother and a daughter was twisted. However, it's unclear whether Lauren knew about Keith and Nancy's relationship, but she did find out that her boyfriend was having sex with several other women in his inner circle. According to journalist Colin Moynihan, Keith explained this by claiming that the sex was a hardship he had to undergo in order to further the women's personal growth. In addition to this feat of persuasion, Keith coerced Lauren into having threesomes with the other women in his harem. But when she asked him for permission to have a relationship with a man, Keith refused. Instead, he promised Lauren the thing he knew she most wanted. He told her he would have a baby with her. Despite Keith's promises, the baby never materialized. When Lauren pushed for a timeline, all he'd say was that they would have a baby in between one and five years. However, according to E.J. Dixon, Keith later revoked even this vague timeline. One day after a volleyball game, Lauren jumped on another man while celebrating their victory. Keith was furious. He told Lauren her actions were disrespectful, and they made him question having a baby with her at all. In response, Lauren wrote Keith a letter. In it, she apologized profusely, not just for letting him down, but also for disappointing their theoretical child who hadn't even been born yet. Her acts of penance weren't enough to soothe Keith's wounded pride. He informed Lauren that he was going to have a baby with another of his many girlfriends. In a later testimony, Lauren said the decision left her devastated, and yet she committed to stay with nothing. No relationship, no baby, nothing. Around 2016, 39-year-old Lauren deepened her commitment to Keith further when she swore a vow of slavery, branded her body with his initials, and began recruiting Nexian women into DOS. In a later testimony, she stated that Keith hoped the group would one day grow big enough to have a DOS slave in political office. Lauren never convinced a politician to join DOS. However, she did end up recruiting a DOS game changer. She was an actress named Sarah Edmondson. 
In early 2017, Lauren Salzman sat in 39-year-old Sarah Edmondson's Vancouver apartment. An excited note in her voice, Lauren invited the Canadian actress to join a top-secret international women's group called DOS. Sarah trusted Lauren implicitly. Both women were upper-level Nexians, each doing their part to grow the group's influence in their respective locales. Even beyond Nexium, Sarah considered Lauren her best friend. Not only had Lauren officiated her wedding, but she was also the godmother to Sarah's young son. For that reason, when Lauren invited her to DOS, it was practically a no-brainer. Sure, Sarah was a little disturbed by her best friend's demands for collateral, and she didn't enjoy making the videos falsely accusing her parents and husband of committing atrocious acts, but she trusted Lauren. That's why she also agreed to take a vow of obedience, and even more bizarrely, to call her friend Master. Lauren explained that the honorific was little more than a formality, joking, it's not like you're going to live in a cage or anything. The levity set Sarah's nerves at ease. In addition, like several of the other DOS recruits, Sarah had long been indoctrinated by Jeunesse. She had internalized ideas that women were weak, flaky, and lacking in follow-through. She enjoyed the thought of being part of a sisterhood of women who would help her become the strongest, most ideal version of herself. But once Sarah handed over her collateral, Lauren changed. Sarah was forced to answer texts from her master within 60 seconds, no matter the hour. Lauren also badgered Sarah to recruit her own slaves so that she too could become a master. However, it wasn't the content of Lauren's demands that worried Sarah, it was her tone. There was this new thread of condescension running through all of Lauren's requests, and though she had claimed that the title was little more than a formality, Lauren had begun treating Sarah like a master, talking down to her slave. According to Sarah's book, Scarred, while being enslaved to Lauren didn't require her to live in a cage, she nevertheless felt shackled by the collateral her friend held over her head. That's why, a few months after joining DOS, when Lauren invited Sarah to fly to Albany to partake in an initiation ceremony, Sarah agreed. According to Sarah's book, on March 9, 2017, she and four other women were blindfolded and herded into a house by Lauren Salzman. Though Lauren refused to tell them where they were, peeking through the little sliver of light at the bottom of her blindfold, Sarah was sure she was in Allison Mack's house. She'd been there before and she recognized the furniture. However, the former CW actress was nowhere in sight. After some time walking, Lauren led the women into a room. Then she told them to take off their blindfolds and strip down to their underwear. Now that she could finally see, Sarah recognized the other four women from events over the years at Nexium. She also noticed that the room boasted a large massage table. And that made sense. Lauren had told Sarah that part of the DOS initiation ceremony would involve getting a small dime-sized tattoo of a symbol that represented the four elements. Sarah had never gotten a tattoo, and she didn't want one. She liked her smooth, unblemished skin. However, her mind was somewhat set at ease when Danielle Roberts entered the room. Like Sarah, Danielle was a longtime Nexian. She was also a doctor. Sarah was relieved that at least a medical professional would be administering her tattoo. Any feelings of ease Sarah had 
instantly drained away when Lauren pulled down her jeans and showed the women the area about her pelvis, revealing the mark they were all about to receive. Sarah was horrified by what she saw. It wasn't a tattoo. It was a brand, a horrible scar. According to her book, Lauren's mark was raised red and inflamed, like a hunk of meat hanging from the most delicate place on her body. Instantly, Sarah knew that she didn't want that thing anywhere on her skin, but she couldn't leave. Lauren had her collateral, those horrible things she'd said about her parents, her husband, all of it was hanging over her head. So when Sarah was given a face mask to wear for hygiene reasons, she put it on. When she was commanded to help hold down the legs of the first slave, Gabriella, Sarah clamped her hands down. And then she watched with horror as Dr. Danielle Roberts dragged a cauterizing pen across Gabriella's skin. The process took 45 minutes. For 45 minutes, Sarah listened to Gabriella's screams of pain. And then, when it was her turn, Sarah climbed up on the table and lay down. At Lauren's prompting, she said the words, Master, would you brand me? It would be an honor. Then Sarah tried her best to lie still as Dr. Roberts traced liquid fire across her skin. In the aftermath, Sarah tried to make peace with what had happened. She told herself that it was what she had to do to be strong, to be a badass, to take charge of her own life. And yet, with a permanent mark on her body, Sarah didn't feel very much in charge at all. A few weeks later, as the brand began to heal, Sarah was better able to discern the design. She didn't see a symbol for the four elements like Lauren had promised. Instead, Sarah saw four letters, first an A-M, then a K-R. That's when she knew Keith Ranieri and Allison Mack's initials had been burned into her skin forever. On seeing that, Sarah no longer felt powerless. On the contrary, she was furious. Up next, Sarah blows the whistle on DOS. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. In early 2017, everything in 56-year-old Keith Ranieri's life was working to feed his ego. He'd convinced his frontline slaves to recruit beautiful young women into a sadomasochistic sorority, DOS. In addition, Keith was fleshing out plans to build a dungeon so that he could engage in even more coercive sex games. However, unbeknownst to Keith, as he indulged his darkest vices in Albany, up in Vancouver, 39-year-old Sarah Edmondson was set on bringing his perversions into the light. Before Sarah could do anything, however, she needed to understand exactly what was happening. Despite Lauren's claims that Das was an all-female sorority, Sarah suspected Keith was involved. She believed that the twisted directives about the collateral and the branding were all coming from him. However, she needed something to confirm her suspicions, so Sarah turned to Mark Vicente, 
An esteemed filmmaker, Mark had recruited Sarah into Nexium more than a decade prior. However, after his many years in the cult, both Mark and his wife decided to leave. Hoping to find an ally, Sarah called Mark on the phone. During their long conversation, all of Mark's suspicions came pouring out. He told Sarah that he was disturbed about what was happening to the young women in Albany. He suspected that they had formed some sort of extremist group. He heard rumors that some of the women in this group were being blackmailed into sleeping with Keith. Mark's half-formed suspicions proved the beauty of Keith's kingdom of horrors. Every section of Nexium operated in an information silo, the right hand never knowing what the left was doing. Even though Mark was an upper-level Nexian, he only had fragments, bits and pieces of the puzzle that was DOS. However, Keith's information silo depended on his members not speaking with each other. When Mark breached the silo by sharing his suspicions with Sarah, her eyes were opened. According to her book, Scarred, in that moment, she realized that she had been brought into DOS as Lauren's slave, not to join a sisterhood of empowered women, but to be one of the women forced to have sex with Keith, or more likely, to recruit pretty young women for Keith to have at his disposal. It was at that point that Sarah decided to go to the FBI. For an hour, Sarah told an agent at the FBI what had been done to her. She explained about her years in Nexium, and she tried to break down the predatory nightmare that was DOS. Then, according to journalist Barry Meyer, Sarah filed a complaint with the New York State Department of Health against Danielle Roberts, the licensed osteopath who had performed the branding. Finally, Sarah took her story to the press. There was nothing she could do about the branding, but she'd be damned if she let anyone else be victimized like she was. So she contacted Frank Parlato. Frank was a journalist, but that didn't mean he was impartial. On the contrary, he had an ax to grind with Keith Raniere. According to vice journalist Ellie Reeve, 10 years earlier, Keith had hired Frank to go after Nexium's enemies. However, the more digging Frank did on Nexium's critics, the more questions he had about Keith Raniere. More specifically, Frank didn't understand how Keith had lost millions of the Bronfman sisters' fortune on commodity trades. When Frank started asking his two most lucrative cash cows intrusive questions, Keith fired him. But as usual, Keith couldn't just break up with Frank. He had to obliterate the people who dared challenge him. So, like he'd done with Barbara Boucher and Tony Natale, Keith sued Frank. That was a mistake. An avid blogger, Frank had several online outlets to his name. But more importantly, he was relentless. Keith claimed he didn't sleep. Frank really didn't sleep. He stayed up all hours, every day, writing article after derogatory article about the smartest man in the world. And even after 10 years, Frank's fury hadn't cooled. So in 2017, when Sarah Edmondson told him Keith had graduated from bilking heiresses to branding women, he jumped at the chance to publish the story so he could watch his nemesis burn. Frank was the first journalist to report that a group with Nexium was branding women. And yet, while his articles did cause some people to leave the group, the bulk of Nexium members stayed labeling Sarah as a weak woman having a tantrum. The response of law enforcement officials was similarly disappointing. 
They initially did little to investigate Sarah's allegations, so she knew she had to ramp up her efforts. While Frank could be dismissed by Nexians as nothing more than a disgruntled ex-employee, it was hard to write off the New York Times. For that reason, Sarah reached out to journalist Barry Meyer and told him her story. On October 17, 2017, Meyer's article titled, Inside a Secretive Group Where Women Are Branded, ran on the front page of the New York Times. After the prestige outlet legitimized the macabre tale, the rest of the mainstream media went wild. The story had everything. Celebrities, sex slaves, billionaires, and all of it revolving around a Svengali-esque guru. It was a clickbait wet dream, and all the outlets wanted their piece of the juicy pie. ABC's 2020 covered the story, interviewing Mark Vicente, Tony Natale, and Sarah Edmondson in the process. Vice did a piece featuring Frank Parlato. Dynasty actress Catherine Oxenberg went on Megyn Kelly's morning show and told the world that she feared her daughter, India, was a branded DOS slave. And at home, everybody read and clicked and watched with bated breath, waiting for the next morsel to drop. The national attention finally spurred the FBI to formally open a criminal investigation into Nexium. According to Scard, they called Sarah back in and listened to her story, this time allotting her a full two-and-a-half-day period to tell her tale. As for 57-year-old Keith, he must have watched everything with trepidation. He had always craved the spotlight, but now he found its glare unforgiving. Even worse, now exposed, he was bleeding members. After all, the bulk of Nexians had no idea about DOS. Even Prefect, whose daughter Lauren was a first-line slave, had been in the dark. Journalist E.J. Dixon reported that when she found out, she was furious that her daughter and other women got Keith's initials branded next to their vaginas. And yet, she and much of Keith's inner circle chose to stay. Keith tried to use their loyalty to save his empire from ruin. Journalist E.J. Dixon reported that internally, Keith scapegoated his inner circle. He told them to disavow his connections to DOS and claimed that they had branded themselves of their own volition. He also encouraged them to make a fake website with the Greek letters Bar Alpha Mai. His rationale was that they could tell the authorities that those were the letters in the brand, not his initials. Externally, Keith released a public statement denying all knowledge of DOS. According to E.J. Dixon, he accused the media of shaming the women for engaging in consensual activities and spearheading a campaign against the rights of women and alternative lifestyles. At one point in the email, Keith even compared DOS members to authors of the Declaration of Independence. Despite his assertions of their independence, Keith's first-line slaves were still wholly committed to his interests above their own. That's why, in a later interview with New York Times journalist Vanessa Gregoriadis, Alison Mack claimed that she came up with the brand, stating, People get drunk and tattooed on their ankle BFF or a tramp stamp. I have two tattoos, and they mean nothing. According to Gregoriadis, Alison claimed that she wanted to do something more meaningful that took guts. In the interview with Grigoriadis, an interview that Keith arranged, 
Allison also assumed responsibility for the 500-calorie diets all DOS members stuck to. They weren't instituted so women would fit Keith's sexual ideal. Instead, she claimed that she wanted to save women from the trap of emotional eating. As for the requirement that DOS slaves refrain from orgasm, that was so they could, quote, heal their negative sexual patterns. Lauren Salzman was equally protective of Keith. She told everybody that would listen that he knew nothing about DOS. According to E.J. Dixon, emboldened by Lauren's loyalty, Keith once again dangled the prospect of having a child with her, even accompanying her to doctor's office visits so she could receive fertility treatments. At the time, Lauren was thrilled, but when Keith refused to get a blood test, she realized that his true intent was to keep her doing what she was doing better than anyone else at the time, which was going out and legitimizing DOS. And despite this realization, Lauren stayed. Nearly all of Keith's inner circle did. This, even though they had to know that taking credit for DOS, a group that branded unwilling women, could possibly land them in jail. This seemingly irrational behavior might have been due to the sunk cost effect. According to psychologist Hal R. Arks, this phenomenon is manifested in a greater tendency to continue an endeavor once an investment in money, effort, or time has been made. This was certainly true of Keith's inner circle. Allison Mack had practically abandoned her acting career to further the goals of Nexium full-time. By 2017, Claire Bronfman had poured over $150 million of her fortune into Keith's enterprises. As for Lauren Salzman, she had sacrificed her lifelong dream of becoming a mother during her best fertility years. Given everything they'd lost, it might have seemed too painful to walk away. However, despite his inner circle's best attempts to shield him from consequences, their denials fell on cold and disbelieving ears. And in November 2017, upon hearing that the FBI was interviewing witnesses and victims connected to DOS, 57-year-old Keith fled to a villa near Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Keith's Mexican villa was in a luxury compound. Perhaps it was the blatant opulence that set Keith at ease. Whatever the reason, three months after arriving in Mexico, he sent for Allison, Lauren, and three other frontline slaves. Keith believed that he needed to have a recommitment ceremony with his slaves so they could prove their loyalty to him. According to Keith, loyalty apparently consisted of five women jointly giving him a blowjob. According to journalist Michael Blackman, Lauren wasn't looking forward to the event. In a later testimony, she stated that she thought to herself at the time, do I really have no way of growing except by participating in a group blowjob? Fortunately for Lauren, the event never came to pass. On March 25, 2018, Mexican federales broke into 58-year-old Keith Ranieri's little slice of paradise. E.J. Dixon reported that Lauren Salzman was in the kitchen making smoothies when the armed federales stormed inside. Lauren's first thought was to protect Keith, so she ran to his upstairs bedroom to try and help him escape. Instead, she was barricaded inside the room with him as the federales banged on the door. As Keith hid, Lauren tried to stall the cops by asking them if they had a warrant. They responded by kicking the door in. Lauren instinctively crouched down to the floor, cowering as they pointed their loaded machine guns at her. All the while, Keith, her master, 
the one who had counseled her in all the ways that men were stronger than women, more rational, made of sturdier stuff, did absolutely nothing to intervene. Finally, terrified for her life, Lauren called out his name, confirming his presence in the room for the authorities. It was only then that the smartest man in the world stepped out of the closet he had been hiding in. And finally, Lauren saw him for what he was. The man whose initials she had branded into her body was no grandmaster at all. He was a coward. Up next, Keith is tried for his crimes. Now, back to the story. In March of 2018, 58-year-old Keith Ranieri fled to Mexico after a deluge of damning press. Mexican federales busted in, arresting the cult leader on sight. Shortly after his capture, the Mexican authorities extradited Keith back to New York. There, the cops charged him with, among other things, racketeering, forced labor conspiracy, wire fraud conspiracy, and sex trafficking. In other words, the federal authorities believed Keith created DOS. They accused him of coercing women into sleeping with him, then branding them with his initials. However, even though Keith was pulling the strings, he wouldn't have been able to build DOS without his loyal army of accomplices. On April 2nd, 2019, 42-year-old Lauren Salzman pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering. In court, she expressed her remorse, stating, I'm very sorry for my decisions that resulted in harm to others, and not just the victims in this case, but to hundreds of members of our community and their friends and families. Allison Mack was charged next. On April 8th, the former CW actress pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering conspiracy and one count of racketeering. According to journalist Amanda Arnold, in court, Allison admitted that she coerced women into giving her embarrassing information and photographs in order to blackmail them into going along with Keith's demands. Prefect Nancy Salzman, billionaire heiress Claire Bronfman, and Nexium bookkeeper Kathy Russell also pleaded guilty to crimes connected with Nexium. In court, Claire, like Lauren and Allison before her, expressed her regret, stating, I am truly remorseful. I endeavored to do good in the world and help people. However, I have made mistakes. Despite their expressions of remorse, Keith's accomplices respectively face anywhere from two to 40-year sentences behind bars. As of this recording, the court has not yet decided on their punishment. Naturally, the stakes for Keith were much higher. If found guilty, the Grandmaster of DOS would spend the rest of his life in jail. And on May 7, 2019, a little over a year after his capture, the cult leader's headline-grabbing trial was finally at hand. In federal district court in Brooklyn, all the main players were in their places. In a beige sweater, 59-year-old Keith sat by his lawyer, Mark Agnafillo. Across the courtroom, the prosecutors deliberated. In the audience section, Tony Natale sat, taking it all in. The last time Tony saw Keith, he told her the next time they met, she would be dead or in jail. Yet there she sat, a free woman, as the rest of his life hung in the balance. In her opening statement, assistant prosecutor Tanya Hajar characterized Keith as a charlatan and a scam artist who compared himself to Albert Einstein while quietly grooming many of his female followers to fulfill his sexual desires. 
under the guise of spiritual empowerment. Mark Agnifillo, Keith's high-powered defense attorney, naturally took the opposite tact. He claimed that all of Keith's actions were done in good faith. Agnifillo asserted that Keith founded DOS as a sisterhood so that its members could make their lives better. Lastly, he focused on the fact that 17,000 people took Nexium courses, and many of them got something wonderful out of it. But the egalitarian picture of Keith Agnifillo painted crumbled over the course of the six-week trial as the prosecution started calling witnesses to the stand. Over the course of a grueling three-day testimony, Lauren Salzman took the jury through her relationship with Vanguard. She told them how he promised her a baby, then left her with nothing. Lauren also tried to explain the depth of her feelings for Keith, saying, he was my master, my most important person. I respected and trusted him. I wanted to be like him. According to Lauren, they had pet names for each other. She nicknamed Keith Doomp, and he called her Lorne slash Forlorn because she was, quote, sad and suffering. Despite her suffering, Lauren told the jury how her love for Keith led her to restrict her diet, send him up-close pictures of her vagina three times a week, and help him craft a misogynistic rulebook for DOS. However, Lauren stated that the worst thing she did at Keith's behest was aid in his imprisonment of Daniela Flores. Keith had confined Daniela to a small bedroom for two years. He did so after the once promising Mexican student confessed that she had feelings for another man. During her imprisonment, Lauren had been one of Daniela's only points of contact with the outside world. However, when Daniela begged Lauren for her immigration papers so she could return to Mexico, Lauren denied her request. She believed that doing so would help Keith see her as a responsible parent, finally causing him to give her the baby he'd long promised her. Lauren sobbed as she explained her complicity to the jury. While her testimony shed her actions in an unfavorable light, it no doubt cast a harsher glare on Keith, especially when the prosecution called Daniela Flores to the stand. Daniela confirmed that Keith had indeed imprisoned her for two years. While there was no lock on the door, the room was a cage in all but name, because as Daniela explained to the jury, her parents were staunch Nexians. Keith told them that she had committed an ethical breach. However, he didn't tell her parents that her crime was developing feelings for another man. Instead, according to journalist Colin Moynihan, Keith told them that Daniela's enforced solitude was to cure her of the sin of excessive pride. Daniela knew that if she walked out of the room without resolving her so-called sin, her Nexian parents would abandon her. Eventually, however, even that fear wasn't enough to keep her with Keith. So one day, she walked out of her prison and went to confront the guru in person. According to Daniela, the smartest man in the world literally ran away from her and hid. Before she could pursue him, she was grabbed by a few of her fellow Nexians, driven to the Mexican border, and summarily dropped off. However, Daniela's freedom was bittersweet. After all, her sister Camila was still in Keith's control. According to prosecutors, Keith referred to Daniela's youngest sister as Virgin Camila, allegedly because he began a sexual relationship with her in 2005 when she was only 15 years old. 
Despite these claims, Keith treated Camila with the same cruelty he showed to all his partners. He harassed her to get her weight down to below 100 pounds, and he pressured her to find other virgins on Tinder for him to have sex with. WhatsApp messages between the two also revealed that Camila might have been Keith's very first DOS slave. In 2015, he pushed 25-year-old Camila to find a slave of her own, texting, I think it would be good for you to own a slave for me that you could groom and use as a tool to pleasure me. In an even more disturbing message, Keith asked Camila if she'd agree to take a brand. The young woman responded with horror, writing, What do you mean? Branded like cattle? Keith sent back a flippant retort, texting, Don't you want to burn for me? Camila did not. As a result, Keith's initials were never branded into her skin. However, the prosecution made sure to inform the jury of the many women within DOS who had been branded. They also called witnesses to the stand to detail the many sexual abuses forced on the women in DOS. A struggling actress identified only by her first name, Nicole, had been recruited into DOS by Allison Mack. She told the jury about her harrowing experience, being bound to a table and having an unknown person perform oral sex on her. Aspiring equestrian Sylvie, who had been recruited by Monica Duran, burst into tears as she recounted being coerced into seducing Keith. And yet, despite the harrowing tales conveyed by the prosecution's many witnesses, in his closing arguments, Keith's defense lawyer, Mark Agnafillo, insisted that all of the guru's relationships were entirely consensual. Ultimately, it was up to the jury to decide. And on June 19, 2019, after listening to six weeks of testimony, they returned with their verdict. The 12-member jury of Keith Ranieri's peers unanimously found him guilty on all seven counts, including racketeering, forced labor, and sex trafficking. The decision was celebrated by several of Keith's victims. According to Times Union's reporting, Tony Natale wore a striped jail shirt on the last day of her former tormentor's trial. Of her outfit choice, Tony said, I wore this so Keith would know what he would be looking at for the rest of his life. Despite her optimism, it's unclear how long Keith's sentence will be. At the time of this recording, his sentence hearing was pushed back due to the coronavirus pandemic. What is clear, however, is the utter degradation of Keith Ranieri's empire. His lucrative company, Nexium, was shuttered in 2018. And while journalist Frank Parlato alleged that DOS was still operational, the sadomasochistic pyramid certainly no longer boasts Keith at its apex. As for his right-hand woman, after posting bail of $5 million, 37-year-old Allison Mack was fitted with an ankle bracelet and placed under house arrest, where she awaits sentencing. Keith's accommodations are far less plush. He's confined to a six-by-eight-foot room behind bars. Even worse, he's known the world over as a grifter, criminal, and sexual predator. And yet, despite the severity of his changed circumstances, nothing about Keith's precipitous decline is especially shocking. When he was a little boy, his parents gave him an IQ test and told him that he was gifted. The act was akin to handing Keith a vial of poison. From that moment on, his inflated sense of self only grew. 
To feed his insatiable ego, Keith manipulated women into giving him their money, worshipping his brilliance, and ignoring his many infidelities. And yet, even sleeping with scores of women in the lap of luxury wasn't enough to satisfy Keith. He needed to own them. So the self-professed genius created DOS, a group in which he literally burned indelible evidence of his crime onto women's bodies. In initialing DOS recruits, he might as well have written a letter to the police saying, I did it. And yet Keith was blind to his folly. He had once compared Tony Natale to Lucifer, warning her that her hubris would lead to her demise. Unbeknownst to the all-knowing guru, he wasn't describing Tony. He was talking about himself. And like the fallen angel in Paradise Lost, Keith's actions landed him in a hell of his own making. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Keith Ranieri, amongst the many sources we used, we found Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life, by Sarah Edmondson with Christine Gaspari, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Abiyageli Ademeku, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.